Hi there. Welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Devin Brand. If you're new to the show, then welcome, but all my long-term listeners, hello. I'm glad that you're with me again. Today we're talking with Dr. Henry Grayson, who has a doctorate in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, and he studied neuropsychology, EFT, and a bunch of other spiritual philosophies. So we know that we shove emotions inside of us, and they have physical effects. I felt the effects of stress on my digestion. I'm sure you have something similar. So we're going to get straight into the show. That's what I try to like to do these days. And if you would leave a review on iTunes, it takes two minutes. Click ratings and reviews and then write me something in there. That would be awesome. And then if you haven't, check out my book, ebook, audio book, and bonus interviews called Rim Rehab back at my website, notjustpaleo.com. I have four hours worth of interviews with some of your favorite podcast guests on there. And we talk about everything that involves sleep, stress, hormones, fat loss, and mental functioning, so anybody and everybody would benefit. So that's all I got. Let's get into it. I'm here with Dr. Henry Grayson, and we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things today, and I just want to jump right into it. So hey there, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, so where are you located? Uh, I'm in New York City and in Westport, Connecticut. Oh, okay. So are you in the middle of the concrete jungle? Um. Right in the middle of it is where my New York office is, yeah, uh, right uh, on 57th Street in Columbus Circle area, but at least it's only about three blocks away from the park. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. Cool. Okay, so can you explain what exactly you are and what you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a psychologist, but I'm not a traditional psychologist. Uh, I have um, been trained in most of the major forms of psychotherapy. But I felt like that uh, there's a lot in each one we need to bring together. Then in addition to that, I've been very interested in uh, other things too, such as quantum physics and the worldview that comes out of that, um, neuropsychology and brain scan studies. It's very, been very important. And uh, worldwide spiritual wisdom, I think, has been relevant as well. And so I bring all these things together into the uh, various tools from mainstream psychotherapy too. Great. Yeah, I feel like the mainstream of anything is kind of lacking, and it's a little bit dated as far as actually how to apply the stuff and to use mm. it. I feel like we've just we've learned so much, and it hasn't reached the mainstream professions yet. Right. Yeah. And the important thing is that we keep evolving and learning. Right. Yeah, so you wrote a couple books, and like I said just a minute ago, I haven't actually got the chance to read them yet, but your most recent book that came out uh, two years ago— it's uh, Use Your Body to Heal Your Mind, Methods to Release All Barriers to Health, Healing, and Happiness. It sounds awesome, so I'm looking forward to reading it. What what was it that made you write that book, or what did you learn that made you write that book? Well, it began probably long ago when I was uh, in graduate school. Probably the whole idea started. Uh, I've been interested, I don't know why at that point, but I was interested in something about the mind-body connection. And there were no courses in graduate school in Boston University at that time about mind-body things or research. So I talked to a professor and letting me do a directed study where I'd go out and do my own research and then write a paper for him and he would grade it and so on. And so that had been of interest to me. And then it was one windy, cold, blizzardly-like day in Massachusetts that I had a German Shepherd puppy. He was getting out of his fence and there was a highway nearby. He had to get out and repair it. And it was like a... 10 degrees and a wind was blowing maybe 20 miles an hour and it was snowing like crazy 
And I began to get a sore throat. And I knew where that always went. From the time I was 15 years old to that point in my mid-20s, I would get these horrible uh, colds, you know, several times each year. It would start off as a sore throat, then it would develop into the horrible cold. It would often be laryngitis, so I couldn't speak to. And it was quite debilitating. And so um, uh, I was out doing this work on the fence, and I started to get that sore throat. And I was really quite upset about that because I had comprehensive exams coming up, you know, a couple of days. And I thought, that's the last thing I need right now is to have one of these debilitating colds. I want to just finish up my preparation and get the exam passed. Mm -hmm. And so then I suddenly remembered that I'd been studying about mind-body connection. And at that point, it was just a few things the research showed connection with. It was like ulcers, skin disorders, asthma, and a handful of things. was it, where they thought there was a mind-body connection. And I remember at that moment, I thought, this is really weird. How could could the mind-body connection be limited to certain parts of the body, you know, and not be other parts of the body? And so uh, I thought, that just doesn't make sense. And so I thought, well, what about this cold? And so I began to ask myself some questions. You know, why might I need this? What would it get for me? What would it get me out of doing? You know, what emotion might be expressed in it? Or is there some metaphor that might be expressed in it? And since then, I've added a couple of other questions since that time. That Was there some kind of trauma or stressful thing that I've not cleared that's contributing to it? Or is there a belief system, a cultural belief, family belief, personal belief that might be involved? Like somebody sneezes on you, you're supposed to get a cold or something. Or you have to get one, which is a kind of a cultural belief that we have around. And so, anyway, I asked myself those questions. And when I got down to what would it get me out of doing that, my first thought was maybe to get me out of taking the comprehensive exam. And then I thought, no, I don't really want that because I'm 95% prepared. I've given up weekends for, for several months in preparation for their studying, uh, given up family time and friend time and downtime. So I know I don't want that. So I kept asking the questions, you know, well, what, what would it get for me? What would it get me out of doing? Is there an emotion being expressed in it? And when I asked myself that question, I suddenly saw my neighbor looking out of her kitchen window overlooking my yard where I was doing the work and I felt a big pang of guilt and I thought wow I'm onto something here what would this be about and I remembered yes I was going to do something for her aged father she takes care of and I was going to do that in a couple of days when after I'd taken the exam and I knew I wasn't trying to get out of doing that because I'm a man of my word I, if I give my word to something I keep it so I thought it couldn't be that And then I thought, well, what's this about? Why guilty? And then I suddenly realized I was feeling guilty because of my projection onto her. I was standing there projecting onto her that she was seeing me out in the yard in this horrendous weather doing something for my dog when I'm not taking the time to do whatever it was for her father. And that was my guilt. And I thought, well, I don't really know what she's thinking, but that's what I thought she was thinking. And now I know that it was just my projection, like we all do all the time. We're constantly projecting things on everybody. Uh, But we just don't think we are. We think we're experiencing reality when mostly it's our projections so much of the time. So I thought, well, how would I prefer to deal with this? I don't want to pay the price of getting sick, you know, but I've got the comps coming up. And I thought, well, I'll just handle it differently. I'll just put it in perspective so I don't have to feel the guilt. And I'll just, when I finish, I'll go in and give her it was and tell her I'm 
just wanted her to know that I'm taking comprehensive exams on Monday, and over the next day, I'll be over and do whatever for her father. The most unusual thing happened within, well, in the past, any time I get the sore throat, it always developed one of those ho horrible, full-blown colds and sore throats. This time, once I made a decision to deal with what it was about, the emotion that was contained in it, that I would do it differently, suddenly, uh, not suddenly, within about 15 minutes, the sore throat totally was gone and never came back. And I thought, wow, this is the first time ever. Then the fact is, I've never had another one of those horrible sore throats and colds since, and it's been many decades. Why? Because if I start to get the slightest symptom, whether it's about a cold or anything else, I always ask myself that series of questions. Why might I need this? What would it get from me? What would it get me out of doing? What's the emotion that's expressed in it? Is there a metaphor being expressed in it? Like somebody's a pain in the neck or something like that, or this is backbreaking. And, uh, or if there's some trauma that needs clearing or some belief system. And I find when I can get to what it's about and find an alternate way of dealing with it, then the symptom typically goes away. Sometimes I found I can get to it instantly. Other times it might take me a few hours or days. Once it took me three years to get to what something was about. But the minute I got to it and dealt with it differently, it never happened again. Wow. So you're saying a lot of a lot of people's physical sicknesses and mental disorders and all this stuff, some of it could be linked to just our own thoughts. Well, I, I wouldn't put it quite so mildly as you did. I think it's largely that. I think it's a, a rare exception when it's something else. It's been my experience. But most of us are afraid to embrace that power. <clears throat> if we embrace that power, then... Uh, uh, it's maybe a little frightening to us. You just sneeze. So what does that mean? <laughs> I missed what you said. I said you just sneezed. So what does that mean? What are you? Uh, are you projecting <laughs> or something? Thing. Why did I have a little tickle in my throat <laughs> right at that moment? And I think what it was when I was making the statement that was so strong, which I usually don't do on a show like this. I make it a little more modified form. But I stopped and realized, no, I really do believe that that's so. It's just that most of the time we're not conscious what it's about. <clears throat> we live in a culture where everything we perceive, especially in medicine, that the cause is outside us and the cure is outside us. Even in medicine, when a physician says to you, I'm going to put you on this medicine, that creates a sense of powerlessness in itself. He's putting me on something. He has all the power. Not He's not picking me up and putting me on something. He might recommend it to me and I have a choice as to whether I take it and use it. That's a totally different perspective. So we have a culture where we think that most illnesses happen to us and the cure for it is outside us. But in that whole system, we don't ever really get to the cause. Since we keep getting more and more sicknesses, which is what's happening in our whole culture now, and it's going to overwhelm our immune system, I mean our, our, our health system, healthcare system, and it's going to overwhelm our insurance uh, programs and so on, because we're still seeing the power is outside. If we can begin to embrace the power as inside and take it back, I find it makes all the difference in the world. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean that I've sometimes not gotten to that. And once I had a hernia repaired, I've not been able to get to what it was about, and so I, I had it repaired. But I've protected myself or saved myself from surgery on several occasions because I was able to get to what it was about, even though the physician said I needed surgery for this or that. Really? Do you care to talk about what those were? 
Well, the biggest one was uh, maybe about 25 years ago. Uh, I had a, such a severely degenerated disc that I got to the place that I could not move a centimeter without being uh, without excruciating pain, like I was being jabbed in the back with an ice pick and then shocked with electrodes. And it was excruciatingly painful. And it had gotten worse and worse over a period of a few years. And sometimes it'd be almost debilitating. At this point, it was totally debilitating. Just lying in the bed in total agony and pain. And the doctor said, you know, surgery is necessary. You've got to have that operation to have that repaired. There's such a severe degeneration is no other answer. But I discovered as I researched it that 68% of the time back then, you were worse off after that, that surgery. So I didn't want to take that kind of chance to do a surgery where 68% of the time I'd be even worse condition. Duh, that didn't make sense to me. Then I suddenly remembered what I'd done with colds. I'd never done it with any other kind of symptoms. Why didn't I generalize? Because probably our egoic mind doesn't want us to embrace that power. It wants us to not put things together where we could have own our power. So I hadn't even thought that I could apply it somewhere else. But when I was desperate here, when I thought maybe I wouldn't walk again and surgery might even make it worse, I thought, I don't want to do that. I've enjoyed the sports. I enjoy being active. I enjoy being healthy. I don't, I, I don't want to lose that. So I suddenly remembered those questions, and I started to ask myself those questions again. And I came up with three, three different things I needed to deal with differently. And I made a firm commitment to, that I would deal with those in different ways. Two of them had to do with issues with people. Somebody I'd felt betrayed by, I had not dealt with that issue with that person. Somebody else I'd had a conflict with, with a colleague about something, I needed to talk that out. And I had not done that. And then I realized, too, that I'd never done stretching. With all the sports I'd done, I'd never done any stretching. So I realized I made a commitment to myself that I would start some practice of yoga for to get that stretching. And then I realized, too, I needed some way that's healthy to reduce stress. And while I never was a heavy drinker of alcohol, but when I would be stressed or upset by something, I might make myself a stiff scotch on the rocks and drink it. At that time, I did. And so I realized I need something more doable for that, one that gets more to the cause of that. And so I decided I would learn not only yoga, but I'd learn meditation. And I'd learn to that, do that as a regular practice because that would calm down my limbic system and that would reduce stress. And we know it has so many fringe benefits, which I'd read about, and I thought, well, that's appealing too because meditation uh, boosts your intelligence, it boosts your immune system, uh, you get fewer common ailments, you're less prone to serious illnesses. After five years of doing it, it takes a year of aging. For each year you practice meditation, year of aging off your bodily organs. Uh, you're um, naturally more loving and less angry or frustrated. You can deal with difficult people more easily. I thought, okay, all those benefits appeal to me. I'll go for that. And so I made a commitment to all those things. I gradually started to get better. And I was up to move around in a few days, and was it two or three months later, somewhere around in that time, I was skiing in Colorado. And I thought, wow, how did that big change happen from when I was supposed to be, you know, really having surgery? And here, and now I'm skiing in Colorado, and I'm turning it into physical therapy. I'll ski 50 yards, and I'll stop and do some stretches. I'll ski another 100 yards, and I'll do another stretch. And I got better and better each day. And so... Uh, from that point point on, I became pain-free, and I could do anything I wanted, even though the x-rays say there's no way I could do it. 
And then probably about six or eight years ago, I went into my physician for a routine uh, uh, routine checkup, which I do every two or three or four years just to not to find out what's wrong, but I go to get the proof about how healthy I am. And so I prefer that particular attitude to it. And so I went in and he said, Henry, we haven't taken a, uh, an x-ray of the chest of yours in you know, eight or ten years. And said, I'd be remiss if we didn't do it. And I said, well, I don't really want the, the radiation. He says, but I have new equipment. It's less radiation. He finally convinced me to do it. Now I'm glad I did because he came back and said my lungs were fine. But this is why I'm glad. He says, but he started to stammer at that point. He says, but, but, but he just won't believe this. It's a miracle. I said, what? He says, that disc of yours, that degenerated disc, it's totally restored. That's not supposed to happen. And I said, well, I'm so delighted to hear it, and I'm glad to believe it, and I'm grateful. And that told me that most anything is probably possible for us. That if we can really believe it strongly enough, that's the part that rules. It's my mind that rules. It's not matter that rules. Even in the quantum world, physicists are saying it's consciousness that rules. Even if you take an atom and you crush it, we used to think inside it, you know, was a lot was matter in there. It was electron, proton, and neutron. Remember they in school they used to do those diagrams for us? Now in the laboratory upstate in New York, they'll crush an atom. They don't find anything there but energy. So there's nothing here in this tangible world. It seems so real to us, the physical world, but it's really just energy and information. And if that's so, things aren't etched in stone, so to speak. It's really consciousness that rules. And the physicists are trying to research and find, well, what is this thing we call consciousness? And they can't define it. But they're searching, trying to understand it, because they realize it's what permeates the universe. And maybe it's more like what many spiritual traditions have called God, except they usually personify God in a cloud out there somewhere. But, uh, but it's not that form of God. It's that intelligence in him we live and move and have our very being, is one saying or that intelligence we are part of, or the unified field that we cannot be separate from. And so maybe it's there where we have that power. There's so much wisdom in there that it was unbelievable. My grandpa right now, as we speak, he just got the same story that happened with you. He was out in Vegas with me visiting about a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at the time. And out of nowhere... His back started kill him, killing him, just excruciating pain, just like you said. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, I leave town, and his, his back's still killing him. He gets x-rays, of course, super degenerative disc. They haven't recommended surgery or anything yet. I'm going to tell him not to if they do. But it's just amazing how similar these stories were because a few, <laughs> a few years back, my grandparents went to go sell their house. And they had these best friends for like 50 years. They're, they're friends from high school. And they were the realtors for the house. Well, they didn't market the house very well, so it didn't sell. And so mm-hmm. they said, well, we're going to go to another realtor company. We're going to sell the house. And so they did. Mm-hmm. Well, you know how money and friendships work. And so the friendship uh-huh. the friendship ended. And this is maybe, maybe three years ago, maybe four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, they've been friends with, with this couple since high school, and so they both claim, both of my grandparents claim they're they're pretty much over it, but what it sounds like, I mean, from your experience, is that you were holding on to something similar, and it was creating physical pain. I mean, that's just amazing that the body can do that, and they yes. could, he could be holding on to that trauma, even if he doesn't mm-hmm. think he is, and now he's... exactly. 
now he's getting debilitated by it. I mean, he still walks, but it's just um, it's amazing to think because I just moved away here to Texas last summer, and they could say, well, I'm fine now that Evan's gone. He moved away, but maybe not. Maybe they could be holding on to something still. So that's that's incredible. Yeah, because the thing is, is that I was thinking of, uh, you know, several things about it. And you said his back is killing him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think about that language. My back would have the intention to kill me. Yeah. Because we use language that projects our power outside. And even project it onto our bodies. You know, my stomach's killing me or my arm is bothering me. What, it has the conscious intention to do something to me? No. No, it happens in the mind first, then gets expressed in the body. Because the body is really a reflection of what happens in consciousness. We now know how that happens with the role of the neuropeptides, those instant messaging system in the body, discovered by Candice Pert when she was the National Institute of Health. And she found that's the instant messaging system because every thought we think instantly communicates to the cells throughout the body, which is quite amazing. And if we realize that, we're constantly giving messages to our body all the time with every thought we're thinking. And as we keep giving those messages, some can enhance health and well-being, others can enhance sickness and cause it to gradually come or suddenly come, either way. And so uh, I've, I've discovered that if I'm not conscious of those thoughts that I'm dealing with, or that I'm stressed out about, or that I'm disturbed by, they're going into my body someplace. But if I, instead of treating it as a symptom, I've got to run to a doctor and say, you fix it for me, that's giving up my power again. That's a place for me to be curious and ask myself, well, what's being expressed here? This is just a language for me to translate. And if I can translate that language, then I can come up with another kind of solution or an alternative. Because if we have that instant messaging system in our bodies, we're giving communications to every cell all the time. And we know at a simple level, 98% of all the cells in the body you have now are new since last year, the same day. And we know the skin on your face is you have the new cells there over the course of a couple of weeks or so. Others more slowly. And so how does it replace itself? Because there's information encoded there that tells it how how to do it so people can still recognize you or you still have a nose in the right place or uh, a mouth in the right place and so on. But what happens, too, if we're giving other information to those cells that are reproducing themselves? And if we're giving negative information that leads towards some kind of uh, incapacitation or some kind of an illness, then that's what will happen there. And so that's why I need to just take everything as a language to be translated. And if I can do that, I'm taking my power back. Now, some people will say, yeah, but if I create a sickness, then they jump into blame and guilt. No, that's just the ego mind wanting us to feel bad and to make it worse. Because if I go into guilt, that increases sickness. That's one major emotion in so many sicknesses. But on the other hand, if I can just be curious and say, I want to understand this language. Now I'm getting the answer here. And so I can do something else about it. And when I make the firm commitment to do that, then that's a key part. But we all have barriers to actually doing those things. Like, uh, you know, having people you've probably known all around that say, why can't I keep up exercise? Or why can't I do this? Or why can't I eat well and so healthily? And, uh, but the American Heart Association says only 10% of the American population will do what they know they need to do to keep a healthy heart. 
or those who go and study meditation and learn a practice somewhere, go to class and learn it, only 5% will continue to practice it. That's the part that we need to attend to. Because if we keep thinking illnesses are happening to us, we set ourselves up to be more power, powerless and done to. But if I can realize I need to begin to take my own power back and to get to identify what these blocks are that have been coming up and keeping me from doing those health-enhancing things. That's when I really begin to take power back and have a real effect on my, my whole body and my health. Right. It's amazing how powerful the mind is. And I mean, if somebody who hasn't meditated before is listening to this, they may think that all of this is silly, but it's not because I've been practicing some form of meditation, whether it's moving meditation or just some kind of breathing or um, I've been getting into the EFT, which hopefully we can talk about. Mm. Um, That's good stuff, too. But I've been practicing this stuff for several years now, and I've accidentally created physical conditions and physical things due to my negative thinking or thinking, mm-hmm. oh, this food, I shouldn't have eat this food because it has gluten in it, so now it's going to tear up my stomach, and then I'll tell myself that. And then, then my you think st- it happened. <laughs> right, and then my stomach hurts. But then other times, I'll just I'll think positive and think, man, this is a delicious meal, and mm-hmm. I feel fine. So it's weird because you can mm-hmm. say that depression and some of these other issues are caused from, say, things like, omega-3 fatty acid deficiency or other vitamin and mineral deficiencies, and that's why people could be depressed or anxious or stuff like that. But it's hard to figure out what percentage of that is going to help you versus what percentage of thoughts are going to help you because just a couple weeks back, um, one of my podcast guests, this guy, Dr. Alan Christensen, he said the same thing, that people can take every supplement and every mineral they're deficient in, but yet they can still have problems. Exactly. So, and on the other hand, it's what they're saying to themselves as they take it. It makes a difference too. Because if I take it, as you said, believing that the gluten's going to disturb me, then it will. And if I'm eating it and just enjoying the delicious meal and not thinking about whether there's gluten there, nothing happens. So, so much of it is the placebo effect. And there's this wonderful title. I forgot who it is now. <clears throat> this guy just written a new book called You Are the Placebo. And I think that's a wonderful title. I wish I'd had that one for my book. <laughs> because um, when we recognize that, that placebo is what really is the power that makes the difference that affects every cell. It's what we believe. Lead us through maybe an exercise or something. I mean, people need help with just taming the taming the monkey mind. I talk about the monkey mind almost every week now because it pops up mm-hmm. so much just naturally in conversation these days with people. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, your thoughts of the economy or the world or everything just overpowers you and all of that outside news just it deems people powerless and they don't know how to act or how to think or how to uh, just be inside of their own head and be happy. Yeah, I'd like to respond to that, but I'd like to come back after that to come back to this thing with your, your grandfather and his back issue. Sure. And because I think, and you said you know about EFT and how he could use that to clear that trauma, and that might make a big difference in itself, you know, with his uh, friends. But anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, but uh, uh, how do we break into this kind of repetitive thought pattern that we have? Uh, studies show that we have 70, 75,000 thoughts a day. 95% of those are the same ones we had yesterday and the day before and the day before. So we have our own characteristic thought patterns we keep saying over and over and over again. 
And so some of those are maybe helpful and joyful making or peaceful making, or they're loving thoughts. There are a bunch of others are fear thoughts, worry thoughts, resentful thoughts, dreading thoughts, guilt thoughts, all these kind of things. And each one of those is having a negative effect on my body and my mood and my whole life, actually. And so how do we break into that? Well, one simple tool I like to break into it because it has a little physical action which helps break into it, but it's what I, doing what I call the thymus heart rub. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, I haven't. It's uh, bring your hand up over the chest, like I have it up here, up over the heart, and then go in a clockwise fashion, just rubbing with your whole hand flat on the chest. You know, some people do it more with the fingers, but they're the people who are afraid to be more loving and really gentle and soothing to themselves. They feel like they must withhold that from themselves. But the full soothing gestures, your hand flat there and going around this fashion. Then as you do that, you're stimulating the energy of the heart chakra. You're also stimulating your thymus gland, which produces T-cells, which is never a bad thing to do that. And so as you do it, then add these words. I deeply love and accept myself, even though I had this worry thought about so-and-so. Or I deeply love and accept myself, even though if I had this resentful thought again, once again. And I deeply love and accept myself, even if I might want to keep that thought for quite a while. But I deeply love and accept myself as I choose to let it go right now. And just doing that and taking, you know, 30 seconds to do it. And it breaks into that thought. and keeps it from being automatic and continuing to snowball. And so that's one little useful tool that I've recommended to a lot of people. In fact, one woman I remember coming to see me some years ago when I just first learned to do that and teach it to people. She uh, came back the next week and said, Henry, I've been doing this all week long. Am I going to be wearing, do I, can I wear a hole in my chest? <laughs> and I reassured her, obviously not. But she, what she might do is to wear a hole in those negative thought patterns. And that that's what would probably happen. Yeah, it's amazing how powerful that stuff is. I did it as you were kind of guiding me through it, and I, I do feel more positive. And with EFT, if people, I think we've talked about it on the show a few times, but basically it's just a series of, I guess, I think it's seven tapping zones. And you just kind of lead yourself through with your fingertips, and then you give some sort of affirmation at the end of it. At first, I was skeptical. I read how mm -hmm. to do it: tap the head, tap the side of the eye, and you know the chin, the uh, below the no below the nose, the chin, the chest, the mm -hmm. sides, the wrist. And I was skeptical, but I, I just I'm always open to new things, and I tried it, and it was almost immediately that I had just a profound sense of relaxation, and whatever I had that I was worrying about, I just I let it all go, and I was. Amazing, isn't it? I was blown away. I, I, I couldn't figure out if it was the physical thing that was doing it or what. How do you explain how that works? I think it's probably a combination of things. Yeah. Because I think, first of all, you're doing a ritual with an intention to have a result. And uh, we use rituals to give us a heightened focus of, of concentration, whether it's an educational ritual, a religious ritual, a medical ritual, you know, whatever it is. That helps us focus our consciousness even more. So that's what's useful about it to start with. But in the uh, ancient uh, system of acupuncture in China, you know, they believe that there are uh, meridians of energy that run through the body. That We used to thought they make them up, and now you can actually photograph them with a the new technology so we know they actually exist. And each meridian of energy is connected to a different bodily organ. And that organ stands for a whole set of negative emotions and the opposite positive ones. And what the Chinese discovered centuries ago, that if you stimulate that meridian with a needle and twirl it around there in that meridian, 
at one of the acupoints, that it reduces the negative emotion and allows the positive one to naturally come in and take its place. So that's the opposite of our contemporary medical world. We give a pill to somebody hoping it's going to help, but it produces two or three more illnesses, nicely called side effects. And so they weigh it as, is it going to be more harm than good? You know, is it better to do it this way? But, you know, we wouldn't do that with our car. We wouldn't take it to a mechanic to say, you know, if every time we took it there, it came back with two more problems. We wouldn't go, but we'll do it with our bodies all the time, which is really kind of weird that we do that, rather than finding a way with consciousness that's totally positive is communication. So, you know, that's a part that we can attend to. And so when we do, well, uh, a guy by the name of Roger Callahan had studied acupuncture and studied applied kinesiology and these things. He's a psychologist out in California. He's an elderly man now. But he thought, how can this be applied to help people in therapy? You can't use needles on people. He thought, I wonder if you just tap on those spots, if that would do it. And he discovered that it did stimulate those acupoints. Then if you added your periods of intentionality, then that went further. Then a guy by the name of Gary Craig took his complex forms uh, that he'd studied with uh, Roger Callahan and took them into a more simplified form, not being a therapist himself. How can we do this as something everybody can use? And that, that we thank Gary Craig for, setting it up that way. I've added some things to the EFT that's happening, which I think even make it more powerful. And I use that with people a lot, as well as the EFT or the TFT. I use them all because they're all very effective in clearing out effects of disturbances, clearing out effects of old traumas, whether they're recent adult traumas, whether they're childhood traumas, whether they're even unremembered early childhood traumas, you know, formative stage of personality. It might even have been in the uterus because we know that the fetus is tremendously affected by everything going on in mom's life. And so we can actually clear out those traumas from those times using one of these tools. The variation I've made on the EFT, the emotional freedom techniques, is to uh, uh, say instead of tapping on the acupressure point, you bring your fingers there and hold it on that spot and say and state what emotion you're releasing that has to do with that energy meridian. So they bring their fingers to the eyebrow and, and say, I now release all fear related to this trauma or this negative belief, or whatever it is. And then I say, exhale fully and completely, and then take a slow and full deep breath. Now, the breathing part, I think, is an essential part that really adds to it so much, because as we do that kind of breathing, that calms the limbic system. And most people don't do deep breathing in a way that helps. They say, take a deep breath, and so their lungs are already three-quarters full of carbon dioxide, and they gasp taking a deep breath, and they only get more anxious. No, to do accurate breathing that calms the limbic system, we need to exhale fully first. We need to empty out the lungs so there's room in there for more oxygen. You know, it's a very simple thing, but it makes total sense, doesn't it? Because then if I empty the lungs, then I can have lungs full of oxygen. When I have lungs full of oxygen, that supplies the, the fuel for my frontal lobes in my brain. If I'm using the frontal lobes more, I can help calm down my limbic system, which is a rational part of the brain. And so if I do that, so if I bring the fingers to the, to the eyebrow and say, I release all fear related to this problem, and then exhale fully and take a deep breath. Then to the outside edge of the eye, I release all anger, resentment, and rage related to this problem. And exhale fully and completely. And inhale slowly and deeply. And then under the eye, I release all anxiety related to this problem. 
Exhale fully and completely. Inhale slowly and deeply. And under the nose, since I release all shame or embarrassment, rather, related to this problem. And under the bottom lip, as I release shame and guilt and so on. And so you can see how that goes. And if people are interested in doing that, there's, they can find a copy of that either in my book, Use Your Body to Heal Your Mind, or they can go to my website and uh, find it as a download. I'm demonstra- I demonstrate that with a person, and one can just download and that and help use my voice to guide them going through it. And it's a download for the EFTA is what I call it. A standing for my adaptation of the EFT. And so I find it quite powerful. It's very relaxing. It's uh, EFT is good too, and I use that as well. But more often I find people will pick this one, other one, because it's much more relaxing and allows the brain to slow down to slower brainwave states. It can release more, can incorporate more and more easily when the brain slows down from beta to alpha or theta brainwaves. Yeah, so, you, you you talked about the limbic system a little bit. I want to get more into that, but you were saying that this modified version, you do want to target these certain emotions for certain points, right? So we don't want to say take anger out of the crown chakra at the top of the head. We don't want to do that. We want to specifically target each emotion to a certain point. You get a little bit extra benefit that way. I think you get benefit anyway because of intentionality. Yeah. But I think if you're stimulating that point that's connected to that meridian and that organ, you get a little extra benefit. So why not get all the benefits? That's what I think. Yeah. Definitely. Well, let's talk about the limbic system a little bit because it's it's interesting and it's kind of holding us back for people that aren't too into the limbic system. They aren't aware that that's kind of the I think it's our handicap for the modern world that's not allowing us to adapt emotionally as well as we could be with all the technological advances. Well, the limbic system is our old reptilian brain that we inherited from the reptiles. And uh, and it's amazing. It's the first part of the brain we develop when we're in the uterus. And then we add the other parts as we get a little bigger and grow. And finally, it's fully developed, you know, in our late teens. But uh, uh, that part seems to rule. In fact, when I used to do my own radio show, I had one uh, neuroscientist on the show I was talking with. And he says, you've heard the statement about the limbic system, you know, once bitten, twice shy. He said, that's a gross understatement. He says that part of our brains is probably 15 to 18 times more active than it needs to be for our stage of evolution. And I thought, wow, that's why we also hooked in in our culture to scary things. That's why they find if they purposely make all newscasts uh, negative, 95% is negative from all the studies shown, and it's purposely done that way. Because that excites the limbic system. That creates fear. Fear means I'm going to watch the show more. That means you can sell the, sell the ads for the show for more money. And that's the way the stations make their money. But by capitalizing on the fear that's stimulated by the limbic system. Now we're having so much of that in our movies and the media. You know, it's so much action and terror and fear provoking far more than it used to be. It's just nice acting that was part of the movies. And that was the main thing. But now it's stimulating more and more fear and more and more tension. And it's no wonder we'll be having increasing illnesses in our society as a result. Because we have a fear activating the limbic system. When that happens, we are producing stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, like crazy. And so as long as those keep pouring out, that's going to uh, weaken my immune system. You know, because it's useful for just a moment if the caveman was escaping from a tiger, or it's useful to say you're rowing down the Niagara River 
and uh, you're having a pleasant Sunday afternoon, suddenly you hear the sound of waterfall, and you didn't know there was a waterfall below, but you hear that sound, you row like crazy to get to the shore, because you don't want to go over the waterfall. But as soon as you get to the shore, okay, you can relax. But what we're doing in our culture is more keeping that limbic system alive all the time. We're fearing something. We have the pressure to do this, to stress over that. We've got to accomplish this. We've got to get that. We've got to get this other thing that's going to make me feel fulfilled. I've got to get this higher position. I've got to earn a lot more money. I've got to have the right car. I've got to have the right house. Stress, 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 and pressure. All that does is chasing these things outside us that we're giving meaning to, as if they can make me happy. But nothing outside me can make me happy. It's my thoughts about something that make me upset or make me happy. That's where the power comes back to me and my brain. Yeah, I actually don't go to the movies very often. I sold my TV five years ago, and I'm very cautious about what inputs I put in. I wrote an article on my website that I, I huh? called just – it was just simple – how to naturally boost your moods. And part of that is not adding things to your life, but taking things away. And I kind of talked about reducing the stressful input. So I'm glad, mm-hmm. I'm glad that I have more firepower backing me up now on that because it's, uh, it's really potent and it has potent effects, but people are unaware of all the inputs, whether it's music or uh, advertisements or movies. I honestly, I don't like to go to the movies. It's, it's too stressful. It, it yes. drives up my adrenaline and I leave feeling dazed, confused, angry, sometimes irritable. I mean, it's not a pleasant experience usually. And they mm-hmm. don't, they don't make movies like Forrest Gump anymore too. So. Right. And they also have increased the volume and the volume for the, uh, for the, uh, Previews of other movies, mm-hmm. it's so intensely loud now. And music stimulates the brain as well and changes the brain cells. And so it changes mood very quickly. And this intense music and the frightening scenes are there to stimulate the pain and horror. So hopefully the limbic system will cry, give me some more, give me some more, let me go see this movie. Very exciting. Okay, it's just the egoic mind using the body and the limbic system for its purposes so I can create more stress and I get addicted to the stress of those stress hormones. Right. So it's not necessarily that the leaders or the powers that be, some sort of hierarchical, I don't know, just elite people behind the scenes. are the, Their goal is not, maybe it is, not to put the society in complete fear to make them powerless. I don't know. It seems like it is, though. But it could just be for money, too, because if you keep I think that's where the fear, initial comes, yeah. So you think money starts it, but do you think there's also this sort of undertone that fear is good because it gives more power also? I don't know how their thinking goes about yeah. that. It'd be hard to say. I'd be, that'd be my projection. <laughs> yeah. That would be, if I, right. If I gave that to them, unless I had direct interviews with a whole lot of them to see what their thinking is. But fear is beneficial for keeping people locked in, though. That is what makes sense. Well, it does keep you hooked in, mm-hmm. and we, then as they we can get addicted actually to those stress stress hormones, right? Adrenaline, and we need another adrenaline fix, and another one, and another one, and so then it keeps us hooked into it, and then that destroys our our well being. If you were to design a perfect day, I mean, this could include work, this could be your off day, or whatever it be, or if you just you know if you had a prescription or a blueprint that you could design for a perfect day that, that should be in everyone's routine, how would that look or what would, what would happen in that day? 
Well, I would hate to set up anything as a perfect today because I think that means that there is such a thing. The key part is more, yes, I may need to engage in certain kind of activities and not others. It's good for me to exercise or to take a good walk or to be out with nature. Yes, that's wonderful to do. And it'd be good to do that fairly regularly. And it's also good to meditate a couple of times a day. Because then if I do that, that's going to help me deal with all the other stresses much more effectively. And it's, it's a form of mind training. It helps me begin to be aware of my thoughts. So those are things I want to put into each of my days. But more important then is how I go through the day and how I interpret everything that happens. Because it's what meaning I'm giving to the various things. That's the key part, because I may not be able to control all the things that happen. I can't control whether I get stuck in traffic when I'm driving to my other office. But I can control how I think about it, if that should happen. I can't control how some colleague or some patient might respond to me or say something to me that's negative. But I do have the power to control how I react to that. And that's the key part about my day, is I recognize where the power is, and that I don't have to be a reactor, but I can be the proactor in determining how I interpret things. I learned that from Viktor Frankl. I was fortunate enough in graduate school to have had him as a visiting professor for half a semester. And he was this uh, Viennese psychiatrist who wrote From Death Camp to Existentialism and a bunch of other books because he was imprisoned by the Nazis in a concentration camp in Dachau. And he wrote books that came out of his experience there. And it was a turning point in my life. In fact, I think that half a semester with him influenced my whole life much more than all the other courses I had in graduate school. Why? Because he said, here in the concentration camp, place where all external freedoms are taken away, he would say, the one thing those Nazi guards could not take away from us is the power to choose what we think in our minds. And his observation was that made the difference between life and death of so many people there in the camps with him. He'd see people that would carry resentments toward the guards or people who were living in terror and fear. He'd find those would be get sick from malaria sooner. They'd get hauled off to the gas chamber sooner. They'd get abused by the guards. He'd find other people that were thinking more about uh, how meaningful their life would be when they get out, how they're looking forward to being reunited with their family or friends or to finish school or to get back to their business or how they would, their attitude while they're in the concentration camp. For example, one day the Nazi guards might bring them their bowl of watery soup and a crusty, moldy piece of bread. And one person might say, those Nazi guards, who do they think we are? They call this food, giving us this moldy, crusty bread. They call that food, and they'll be all upset about it. Another person might say, boy, I'm so thankful we got some bread with our soup today. He said, very simple things like that, the change in attitude made a big difference in people's health and even whether they even survived the camps. And I thought, I'm not living in a concentration camp. I don't have that kind of challenge. But boy, there are enough challenges in my life that make me want to use that to be very much more alert and mindful about what I'm thinking, what thoughts I'm allowing to linger. I think of the, uh, that first yogi that came over to America in the 1930s was Yogananda. And he wrote his autobiography, and I remember reading that a long time ago. But there's one line that stayed with me so powerfully since, when he said, I never allow any thought to linger in my mind without my express permission. And I thought, wow, one can do that? 
I, that's what I aspire to. I'm not perfect at it yet, but I'm doing it better now than I could five years ago, a hell of a lot better than 10 years ago, and I expect to get better at it next year. And one thing I liked about his statement, too, when he says, I never allow any thought to linger, he's not saying, I can't stop the thoughts from coming into my mind, but I can take charge of whether which ones I allow to linger. That's a distinction I think is important. Because the egoic mind that we all have in our human condition will constantly bring in fear thoughts, worry thoughts, resentful thoughts, angry thoughts, guilt thoughts, all the stuff to disturb our peace. But we have the power to choose which ones will linger, which ones will rehearse. So what do you do when you get those? Do you get mad at them and say, get out of my head? Or, I mean, what's the proper way that you found that works to tackle negative emotions when they come in? Well, one of this is what I was mentioning before. The thymus heart rub is a good one. Yeah. Uh, another little 18-second process I like to use is, uh, uh, is to uh, do these five little steps that if my inner peace is disturbed in any way, when I'm not feeling at peace, I'm not feeling joyful, I'm not feeling happy, I'm not feeling loving, to ask myself, what was I just thinking? It's a way of becoming conscious of which thought I had in my mind. And so once I become conscious of it, the goal is not to fight against it, because whatever we fight against, we're going to increase. You know, we don't want to do that. It's like that wonderful phrase that people quoted Mother Teresa about, when people asked her about, uh, how come you never go to, the anti, to an anti-war demonstration? And she says, when there's a demonstration for peace, I will attend. Because she recognized that the anti, or the fighting against, is warlike spirit. And so if we fight against something, we're engaging in a warlike spirit, and that's anti-health and anti-healing and anti-happiness. So what we can do instead is that once I identify that thought, I ask myself, what was I just thinking that made me upset this way? Then I get the thought. Then I can label it and put a uniform on it and say, well, there's one of those disturbing ego thoughts. Why is it important to put the uniform on it? It's because think about what happened in the... Uh, uh, in the uh, uh, Vietnamese War, we had the highest rate of combat neurosis during that war of any war in American history at that point. And why was it? As much of the time, the soldiers did not know who the enemy was. Sometimes it might be the North Vietnamese in uniform, but it might be the Viet Cong who did not wear a uniform. It might be a mother with babe in arms or a 10-year-old boy that might reach inside his jacket, pull out a hand grenade and throw it in their jeep. They never knew who the enemy was. That's what drove them batty. So I think if we don't know which of our thoughts are the enemy thoughts, it drives us batty. So we need to label it and put a uniform on it that way. That's the best way, because if I can label it for what it is, then I don't have to give meaning to it. It's just one of those disturbing ego thoughts. So again, step one, when I'm disturbed in any way, have a loss of peace, is what was I just thinking? Secondly, uh, identify the thought. And then I say, there's another one of those disturbing ego thoughts. If I focus on that, that's going to increase. Do I want that to happen? Because we know whatever we focus on will increase. And so that's a motivator, it seems to me. When I can label it and say, do I want this to increase? No way do I want this to increase. I want the opposite. So then I can use an action word to do something about it. I banish that thought. I cancel, dismiss. Exorcise, one woman said, I prefer to do that since my thoughts seem so demonic. Or it could be whatever. You know, I choose to let it go. I'm not believing that one. Or we can do the even wonderful thing. We can even laugh at that thought. The, 
the irrational and stupid logic our ego mind uses. If we can step back and laugh at it, that's like in the Wicked Witch of the West, sprinkling water on the Wicked Witch of the West. She shrivels into nothingness. Laughter is the best medicine there, as the old Reader's Digest used to say. So we can laugh at that thought. It's another way. And then once we've let that thought go, banished it, canceled, deleted, changed it, then since an old Aristotelian principle is that nature abhors a vacuum, where there's an empty space, something will rush into it. Where there's low air pressure system, air rushes in and creates wind. Hole in the ground, water will flow into it. So if I clear out that negative thought from my mind, something else is going to come back into it. And the ego mind would like it to be another negative thought. So I find it useful to have just a moment of having some, some other positive thought I say to myself two or three or four times. It could be reversing the negative one and make it positive. Or it could be just one I use routinely all the time. I just keep in the pigeonhole over here and I'll pluck it out and use it. A positive affirmation that I'll say to myself three or four times. Just to keep fill that space so that ego mind doesn't rush back in with the negative statement. So I've spent a long time describing it, but you do it in about 15 seconds, actually. And it goes like this. I just discovered I don't feel good. I'm feeling stressed or I'm a little anxious or depressed or whatever it is. What was I just thinking? Oh, there's one of those disturbing ego thoughts. Well, if I focus on that, that's going to increase. Do I want that? No way. Banish that thought. Plug in an affirmation. You see how fast it goes. And I find that one works beautifully once we get in the habit of using it. Or the action of taking the thymus heart rub or the hand on the chest. Sometimes a physical action helps. Another tool some people like to use is just that deep breathing. Now the negative thought, they'll exhale fully and completely and imagine they're exhaling that thought. Then they'll just in inhale a thought of love or peace right into the heart. These are just various tools that people have used. And they're all useful ones. So we can take our pick. The key is that if we want to be free of that, and we really want peace above all else, we'll find a way to do it. And which one of these tools, or we'll make up one, if we really want peace. That was an awesome lesson. I feel like you're a professor or something. I'm glad I let you take the reins on this. It's been awesome. The thing that pokes out is we can't beat war or negative thoughts with more war or negative thoughts. We just have to kind of bypass it, sidestep it, whatever you want to do, and then conquer it with something nicer or more caring or more loving. And that's an overwhelming and popular message that pops up literally almost every episode, no matter who I talk to. So I'm glad that mm. I'm glad that it's reoccurring like that. I mean, it's really starting to teach me a lesson and teach all the listeners a lesson too. Everybody that comes on this show says the same thing. It's just a, it's a different mm -hmm. form now. Mm -hmm. So we each find our own ways of doing it. Right. That's and great. Some will like my form. Some people will like Joe Blow's form. Somebody will like Susie Q's form. Somebody else will make up their own. Yep. But the key part is that we want peace above all else. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, the mind is powerful. So I guess next time something pops up for somebody, whether it's physical or mental, we just need to start questioning why. Mm. Yeah, if it pops up, just or what is the thought? And once I can catch it, then if I'm interested in taking it further, I might see a thought pattern. And if I can see a thought pattern in there, it's like I don't believe I deserve happiness or I'm, I think I'll always be rejected. Or I believe I have to catch this latest sickness that's going around. Or whatever the common thoughts are that occur to me. That's probably congealed into a belief system. 
And that's like software in my brain. Now, the good news is you can use something like the EFT or the EFT to clear that belief. And once you clear it, it makes it easier to monitor the thought. So it's another way we can really get on top of that, you know, even more. Good point. So, I mean, we could have outdated software in the brain that we've held on to since childhood telling us that we're, we're never going to be successful. I'm always going to be depressed. I'm never good enough. We can get we can eradicate those thoughts or beliefs or software systems and then just input a new system that I deserve to be happy. I deserve this job. I will find someone that takes care, takes care of me or we love each other or whatever. So you think that's kind of the, the way to do it? Yeah, because we realize what we focus on is what will increase. Mm-hmm. And I need to keep that basic premise in mind as a kind of a litmus test about my thoughts. Is the one I'm focusing on one I wish to increase? Right. If I'm worrying about one of my children, if I'm worrying about my spouse, if I'm worrying about my friend, do I want to do that to them? People confuse that with love. They think worry about somebody means you love them. No, it's the opposite. It means I'm worrying at them. That helps no one. It doesn't even help me at the time. And if the non-local mind that the physicist call reaches out and affects everybody around, then I'm sending out negative energy. Who wants to do that? So if we become conscious about how that happens, we can break into those patterns and not let that ego mind rule. I've experienced that before. Just when I was with my grandpa worrying about his condition, I was I hadn't had this conversation with you obviously yet, but now I'm, I, I'm a little bit more armed for the situation. But I was trying to I was I was having the battle in my mind of being positive to the situation, like, I know how to fix this, I'm going to give you some fish oil supplements, um, here's some stretches, here's my acupressure mat, here's all these things that I know that work. Mm-hmm. But then the other half was, oh my God, he's he's getting older, his back's screwed, he's, he's going to get worse, who knows how much pain he's going to be in, this is horrible. And so it really was the battle of the mind there, but mm-hmm. ultimately, I guess you're saying just, you got to focus on the good side and the bad side it's just it's your reptilian brain just fighting you because that's the survival instinct that's programmed into you that has fear and all those other analogs of survival built into it Mm -hmm. because if your grandfather is uh most human beings are afraid of embracing their power and so we get hooked into the whole thing of being powerless and a victim and i don't know what state your grandfather is around that But if he's a little bit more open to embracing his power, then he might get inspired by reading uh, Use Your Body to Heal Your Mind and see the examples of how I've done it and people have done it and tools he could use to do it. And to think, oh, wow, there's another option here. I don't have to have my back be killing me. On the other hand, I can tell my back what to do. And I can deal with this if it means that I, you know, clear out that trauma from my, my friendship breaking up or whatever else it might be involved. If I can deal with that differently, then I can be perfectly healthy again. And so it depends on whether somebody is open to it. We can't force them into it. You know, we can't preach at somebody and tell them they got to do it. You know, that, that never works. person has to be ready and they're open to it. Then they can embrace it and they can use whatever the tools are. Right. Yeah, Henry, you're, you're awesome. You're clearly passionate about this. This is great. I'm sure we could do it for 
multiple more hours, but we'll have to save it for another time. But I'd love to have you back on the podcast. But I mean, if there's any words of wisdom you want to leave people with before you give us your information on your book and where we can find you and stuff like that, then go for it. Well, I think the most important thing is, is that we are, you know, incredibly powerful human beings and the power lies in our minds. And we mostly forget that and disown it. And so if we can remember that, we can change anything in our lives because we're not seeing a purely objective reality ever. We're always seeing our projections and the projected meanings onto it. And that way we take our power back too when we recognize that. Uh, but in terms of my book, Use Your Body to Heal Your Mind, you can get that on Amazon, uh, a lot of other bookstores. You can get it on uh, my website, which is henrygrayson.com. You can down, download uh, some of these tools from my website there, henrygrayson.com. You can go there and, and download those and learn how to use them on yourself. And there are uh, various other kinds of tools in there that, in the book that you can use that help in various aspects of keeping yourself healthy and happy and feeling like you're really in charge of your life rather than being done too. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for spending time with me. This has been great. Well, I've enjoyed it. Good to have this dialogue with you. It and is. Thank you for doing these kind of shows. I appreciate your uh, desire to want to help people raise themselves to higher levels of consciousness. Absolutely. I feel like that's my journey. I feel guilty if I don't. So maybe that's another emotion I need to do EFT on. <laughs> that's always a good one to get rid of. It has, never has any redeeming value. <laughs> that's true. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again. Okay. And thank you for the invitation. All right. I hope you enjoyed that show, and if you have guests or topics that you would like covered, I'm on social media. You can go to my website, notjustpaleo.com, and you can reach me that way. I know a lot of you have been sending me emails and requests and topics and stuff like that. I try to get back to you as quick as I can, but I really appreciate you reaching out because that's what this is all about. It's a two-way conversation here. You know, We have us on the podcast, and then... The listeners and the responders, it's good to have a actual community as opposed to just a one-sided conversation. That gets boring for me when I don't hear anything back. So like I said, if you would go to iTunes and click on the Ratings and Reviews tab when you're on my show, you'll see the other reviews, and then you can write your review too. So that would help so much, and it helps to know that I'm helping you. that makes sense? I think it does. Okay. So anyway, that's all I got for you. Uh, you know, my, my personal advice before I let you go for the day is just to take some time for yourself and be a little bit selfish. If you need to get up from your desk or whatever you're doing and go out and stare at a field under a tree and look at grass and trees, then do it. You have to take small breaks that preserve your sanity because if you try to segment your day into, say, 6, 7, 8, 9, 12-hour work sections, and then you expect that when you get off that you're going to be able to go to the gym or go to the park or hang out with your husband or wife or go in the garden with the kids or whatever. If you're expecting a full relief from that, it may not work. So what I found is that segmenting up your day and breaking up small little breaks into that, that's the best thing. That's the best medicine. And if you don't have a bunch of trees and fields to look at, then I would just suggest closing your eyes and then just kind of focusing inward. Um, we, we focus outward all day. Our eyes are open all day. 
I guarantee our ancestors would have not had their eyes open all day. They would have kind of drifted off and closed their eyes and chilled out for a little bit during the hottest parts of the day. So do the same. Close your eyes for a minute. Take a breather. That's all I got for you, folks. Thanks for tuning in. I love you being part of this show and this movement. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool. Kiss her goggles and never leaves her. She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible blues. Why I'm in the tire, got to watch out, girl. Don't wanna see her by her eyes out, girl. 